You're listening to Between Headlines. I'm Allison Hall. For this week's episode of Between Headlines, I spoke with Naveed Shah and Tashandra Poulard. Naveed and Tasha are veterans. Naveed is a veteran of the U.S. military, while Tasha is a Navy veteran. Naveed and Tasha are both activists who work with an organization called Common Defense. Common Defense is a large grassroots organization of progressive veterans fighting for social, economic, and environmental justice and bringing veterans' issues to the forefront of political discussion. After the violent insurrection that took place on the Capitol earlier this month, news reports started emerging that some of the individuals involved in the Capitol breach were either active service people or veterans. Of course, the focus turned to these extremists and how they may have become involved in this undemocratic effort. Admittedly, I was browsing Twitter and I saw a tweet from someone named Alex McCoy at Common Defense. He mentioned that the media was focusing on these extremist veterans and service people and not focusing on the vets who are people of color and whose experience serving their country may have been tainted by dealing with extremists. I'm all for examining what stories are being talked about and the ones that are being overlooked. So I reached out to Common Defense and was introduced to both Naveed and Tasha. And I am so glad that I did. Naveed and Tasha are incredible. They share their experiences that are unique to them, but unfortunately sound not unique in the experience of people of color in the United States Armed Forces. Tasha is a black woman who served in the Navy and traveled all over the world. She shares her experience being on a mostly white ship filled with white men, and her reaction to the insurrection and what needs to be done to weed out extremism from not only the military, but society. Tasha is also a journalist, producer, and writer who is passionate about amplifying underrepresented voices, while Naveed shares his experience as a Muslim American in the armed forces and the racism he experienced while being deployed abroad in Iraq. Naveed has been working toward furthering veterans' issues and progressive politics for 10 years. In 2016, he was invited to sit next to Michelle Obama during the State of the Union in recognition of his work on veterans' issues. I learned so much from Naveed and Tasha, and I really appreciate them sharing their deeply personal stories and the work that they are doing to create a better future for the country they have served and the diverse groups of people that make up the armed forces. Now, on to my chat with Naveed and Tasha. Just tell me a little bit about yourself and your experience serving. How long did you serve? Where did you go? I served 10 years in the U.S. Navy as what's called a cryptologic technician's operator. I was stationed on board the USS Fletcher DD-992 out of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and we went to roughly, I'd say, 20 different countries all throughout the Asian Pacific. So I've been to Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, uh, you name it, Hong Kong, been there, done that. Uh, my service was very interesting. Uh, when I first reported on board to the USS Fletcher, I was the only African-American female that was lower enlisted. So the majority of my entire division was white males. 
and we had a white female chief petty officer and a white female lieutenant that was in charge, our division officer. And I remember the first day I reported on board, they were asking me all these questions that was really kind of confusing to me. The, the intaking person that was helping me check in had told them that I didn't want to be there and that I wasn't ready to serve on a ship. Now, of course, being a young woman, it's new to me, so I'm afraid. And I expressed it to him because of the things that I'd heard from Tailhook and many other incidents that were reported in the news. So my thing was, I just want to make sure I'm safe and that I'm working with people that have my back. Well, they took it as I was lazy and didn't want to work and didn't want to contribute to the division. So when I started getting in trouble was roughly after about two weeks of me being there, because really they'd already had a perception of me without me even opening my mouth. And I'm, I'm the type of woman that I have a very strong physical demeanor. So people take it as defensive. It's not that, it's just my defense mechanism from me being attacked by what I think is someone who doesn't appreciate me or like me. So I wouldn't really talk too much. And because of that, rumors spread it that, you know, she's not approachable. She's angry and aggressive. That, that stereotypical black female trope that many people will promote of black women it follows you into military service. And I remember one day, one of my um, petty officers asked me, what do you like to be called, Black or African-American? And it took me by surprise, because I'm like, what does it matter? We're, we're all sailors, just call me Seaman Petty Officer or Tashai, whatever the case may be, because I went by Tasha for short. So I didn't understand what was the, the meaning in that and why it even approached me with that. As time marched on, they would express some views that were very controversial to me. Some of them let me know that they had some racist views of who I was and my service. So we had a situation one day, I, I wanna say we were in Jaba Ali, if I'm not mistaken. And sometimes ships are moored alongside each other on the piers. And there was a ship moored next to us and they had to cross our quarterdeck to get to theirs. Well, we were on the Liberty bus on the way back to the ship before we pulled out the next morning and there was a white sailor on the ship that on the other ship from us that did not like the fact that he was on the boat with a bunch of African-Americans. So while he's in the Liberty bus, he begins to make some comments, some very disparaging remarks about people of color. And some of my shipmates heard it, which of course that was to get their attention to get something started. Make a long story short, before he could even cross the brow to get to the other side where his ship was, he turns back to all of us and calls us all the N-word. And it caught us by surprise because we're looking like, you didn't think that you would experience something like that overseas while in the military on top of that. But it turned into a physical altercation with him and another sailor on my ship. And the sailor on my ship, who happens to be African-American, came very close to getting kicked out of the Navy because he fought this young man. But this young man was being very verbally aggressive and physically aggressive all throughout the night. But the, the focus was on my friend who happened to be Black. And was he disciplined in any way, the person who initiated in this horrible way? I think he may have gotten what we call restriction, where they restrict you to the ship and they reduce your pay for a short period of time. But I don't think he was in any real danger of being separated from active duty like my friend was who engaged in the physical altercation with him. And there have been several instances where I've seen 
preferential treatment given to white sailors and in some cases, white Marines who've demonstrated racist behavior and nothing's really ever come of it. Nothing's happened to them. Everything from some who've tried to sexually harass or sexually assault black females to some who have become very physically aggressive to lower enlisted that had no choice or no say in the matter. Wow. I mean, I imagine just how difficult that was for you, especially starting off that way. You're signing up for something incredibly intense. You've worked so hard. And to have your journey begin in that way must have been incredibly difficult. Well, it was I'm not going to say it wasn't expected because I, I grew up in Texas. I'm from Texas, so I've dealt with racism all my life. I recognize it when I see it. I think for me to go through the training that I went through in the Navy, which is very classified and sophisticated training, and then to get to my first duty station, and the belief is that I lacked the intelligence needed to be there. You wouldn't even make it to your duty station if you didn't pass the classes because you couldn't demonstrate competency in your job. And I was questioned in every aspect of my job, everything that I did, any mistakes that I made as a young person trying to find my way through life and through military service was constantly under scrutiny. And what really got me was that I had a black female chief petty officer that took over for the white female chief petty officer. And some of the attacks started to intensify because now they're angry that you got this black woman in, in a position of authority and I can't take it out on you, but I got this little seaman, this third class petty officer right here that whatever anger I have towards her, I can sure give it to you because what you gonna do to me, I'll, I'll rank you, you know? And don't get me wrong, I wasn't the best sailor. I, I had a lot of growing up to do. I lived a very sheltered life as a young woman. So joining the military was that opportunity for me to expand who I am and grow into my own identity and walk into my own truth. But it was with some eggshells that I had to walk on to walk around white male supremacy and patriarchy, as well as racism that supported it all. Naveed, tell me about your experience. I know you can't sum it up uh, in one sentence, but if you could start to try. Sure. So I joined the Army uh, right out of high school and went into the service thinking that I would be able to serve my country because I had wanted to ever since uh, 9-11. Um, and I would also be able to gain some valuable experience that I could use for work and uh, possibly go to school. You know, so for all the right reasons, and I, and I went in uh, very optimistic, uh, coming from a place where I live in Northern Virginia, right outside of DC. Uh, it's a very diverse community. Uh, you know, there's people from all walks of life. I'm an immigrant myself. And many of my friends were immigrants and uh, many of them were first generation Americans. So I went into it with, you know, with a very open mind. And so when I got there uh, to training and I saw some of the folks who were in, I definitely encountered some apprehension. Uh, people would see my name tag and, and think, what is this guy doing here? But one of the first people I ever met uh, in, in training was actually a Muslim chaplain who was uh, in uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Uh, whose name I can't remember right now, but you know that was the, one of the first experiences I had where it made me feel like welcome and part of the community because I didn't even know what a chaplain was, and let you know right before that, and then to find out that not only does the army have chaplains, but they also have Muslim chaplains and Jewish chaplains uh, and Hindu chaplains, uh, Sikh chaplains, and even that it it was a very inclusive and welcoming uh, group to be a part of that, or so I thought, um, but. 
as I, you know, spent more time in service and, and got to know more people uh, and encountered more more troops, at, at, especially at Fort, once I got to Fort Hood, Texas, uh, I realized that things were, um, you know, not great all the time. There was definitely a couple of instances or encounters where people uh, took my name, took my background, my religion uh, to mean something completely differently than I, what I thought, um, where people would use terms that were, you know, derogatory terms like Haji or, or terrorist or uh, sand N word and, and things like that, that they would say it in a way that, you know, we're joking with you or your buddy. Um, but no, that kind of, those kind of things really hurt. Uh, and it really stuck, stuck out. Um, and it would always start out small where it was one guy making a weird comment or saying something like that. But then those kind of things would snowball where if, if it, the initial comment wasn't nipped in the bud, uh, then it would suddenly, it would become a norm. It would become a habit, uh, to say those things. Uh, and I was really lucky in that regard that I had good leadership where, you know, I had a lieutenant who heard somebody say that to me one time and I kind of laughed and let it roll off my, off my shoulder or whatever. And, didn't let it bother me, but he pulled that person aside and said, "Hey, that's not the way we talk to our soldiers. We're not. We're not going to do that here." Um, and it, you know, so I was really lucky in that regard. But then in uh, November of 2000, uh, 2009, I was deployed to Iraq, uh, and the Fort Hood shooting happened. Um, and so, you know, that was an instance of a Muslim army. Um, I think he was a psychiatrist, actually, or maybe he was a chaplain. I can't remember, but. Uh, you know, he did that shooting and suddenly it felt like the spotlight was on me all over again. You know, if to me, it felt almost like not like the same way I felt after 9-11 because when 9-11 happened, I was in eighth grade uh, and I, here in Northern Virginia, some of my classmates had parents and who were either in the military or civilians who worked at the Pentagon. Uh, and so, they, you know, we were all very scared for, for after that happened. But then there was definitely some stigma that came with it. Um, and I felt like the same way after that, after 9-11 or after the Fort Hood shooting happened, because all of a sudden the spotlight was on on me again as a, as a Muslim soldier. And there were uh, media outlets who were reaching out asking to do interviews because I had happened to be on the phone with my wife at the time uh, talking to her when the shooting happened. And she said the sirens are going off. They're locking down the base. And I just at the time just published a quick blog post that took off about it uh i said what's going on i don't even know what's happening right now um and the next morning when i woke up it had blown up and, and the washington post wanted me to to write a, a something for him about it and at the for a moment i was like ready to, to just jump in feet first and say okay let's let me you know use my voice use my power the what little power i have here to speak out against this and my my commanding officer at the time a uh, very smart guy he said are you sure you want to do this? Cause you don't have to, we don't have to respond to any of these requests. We can leave it alone and leave you alone. Uh, and I didn't understand that. I said, why, why would I do that, sir? What, what, what why wouldn't I use my voice and, and to speak up about this? He said, because the backlash could be pretty bad. And I, of course, being a, I think I was 21 at the time, 22. Uh, I was very uh, kind of reckless. <laughs> I was just like, what, what, well, what's the worst that could happen? And what I found out the worst that could happen was that other um, that there were people out there who saw that and they put me on some website like Jihad Watch or something like that as they thought I was going to be an insider 
just like the shooter at Fort Hood, they targeted my family. They, uh, you know, in all types of threats online and uh, and things like that that were really bad. Uh, but the worst of it really was other troops in uh, Iraq who, you know, would see that uh, name tag and see and they might have read about the stories or they might even have just heard about the shooting and knew that this Muslim guy, Muslim soldier did it. Uh, and here's another Muslim soldier who's sitting next to me who's armed with an M16 and uh, ammo. You know, somebody told my uh, NCOIC, my, my uh, staff sergeant, that, hey, maybe we should take the firing pin out of his weapon and just in case. You know, and, and this is in Iraq. Like, I might need that for myself also for defense. But, um, it, you know, those are the kind of things that where it starts out small. Like, that's and that's I keep talking about the snowball effect, but it's just those little things that just add up to the point where people feel comfortable enough calling to call you names to question your loyalty, right? To uh, do all those, those types of things that are building up to the point where it's okay all of a sudden to say, well, it, you know, this Muslim soldier doesn't belong in this in our American army, right? Even though I consider myself an American first, I'm a citizen, I, and, you know, I, I was a child, but many immigrants have to work twice as hard to become, to earn their citizenship uh, than, than anyone who's just born here. Uh, so, I felt like we had uh, done and, and paid our dues, but in a lot of ways, it felt like every day you had to, you know, buy your right to be an American again. So that was uh, a really tough time. Yeah. It sounds really tough. It, Naveed, for you, I mean, in Iraq, you're you're sacrificing so much. You're away from your family. You're working so hard under extreme conditions in danger. And then you're getting not just the lack of support from your fellow troops, but like outright racism and and bullying, it sounds like, with extreme racial undertones or overtones. Did you ever just want to quit and go home? Is that even an option? Yeah. So I, I again, I was really lucky that my core unit that I was around were really great. And I st I'm still friends with many of them today. I actually just spoke to my staff sergeant last night. Uh, and they were really great about trying to insulate me from that kind of outside pressure. But in those instances where I, I had to go out and do my job, uh, I couldn't stay on base all the time. I couldn't stay with, with my team all the time. I had to go out and do that work. And wh while I was out there, it just, yeah, it did get to me. And there was a point uh, I think about 10 months in where I was I told my boss, I was like, look, what am I even doing here? You guys can do this mission without me. Let me go home early. And I lobbied hard. I was like, look, just let me let me get out of here because I I was genuinely concerned. I was like, something's going to happen. Either someone's going to push me to react to them aggressively or someone is just going to attack me or something's going to go wrong. Uh, and so I was put lobbying pretty hard. But at that, you know, that, again, that time, my NCOIC, my uh, my OIC, my my team, really, the leadership team really came around and said, look, we're going to help you. We're going to help. We're going to have the team who is still back at home at Fort Hood help your wife and take and help her with the baby and, and get her, make sure that she's safe so you don't have to worry about her. Because I was like, these people know where I live, and even though it's on base housing. Again, if, there's, or if I'm hearing this from other troops, what's going to stop them from showing up at my house when I'm not there? Um, so they said they were going to help take care of her. And they said that they will help alleviate some of the burden on me so that I wouldn't have to feel like obligated to go out with, you know, units and, or troops that I didn't know. 
so that I would at least have some comfort in knowing that the, most of these guys are falling under our chain of command. And if they, even if they harbor some ill will, they still know that they have to answer to someone's boss if, they, if anything were to go wrong. So, um, yeah, it was tough. And it, I definitely wanted to uh, come home. But at the end of the day, I'm really glad I didn't. It just felt like, uh, again, going to Iraq was kind of the culmination of why I'd signed up for the service in the first place. Uh, and so I was really glad to do it. Uh, and I think that that year was one of the hardest of my life, but uh, wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed it for anything. For both of you, you're here, uh, you're speaking out about your experiences and some of the more negative and difficult things that you have been through while serving. I mean, that just must be a lot in itself, reliving those experiences and sharing and opening yourself up again to maybe people who still feel that way or who are going to reach out to you. Why is it important for both of you to keep telling your stories? And I know you're both working towards furthering veteran issues. Why? Uh, For me, I want all the other women in service, women of color from all walks of life to understand that what you're going through is nothing new. There are those of us who've gone through it before you and some who've gone before me that have gone through worse and that we're here for you. There is a community of veterans that are progressive, that stand for the things that you stand for in regards to equality, in regards to uplifting women, minorities, immigrants, you name it, as well as standing for same gender loving, non-gender conforming LGBTQ plus members of the armed services. Because my thing is, I've been given platforms to speak on and speak positively to combat the negatives of how, not just how black women are seen in society, but how we're seen in the military in uniform. Because just because you put that uniform on, it doesn't mean that you're not working with people who still have those preconceived notions of who they think you are based upon the color of your skin. The regulations that Black women fall under in regards to your looks, your physical build, how your uniform fits you, how your hair looks, if it's natural, if it's processed, how you talk, everything is always used against you as an assessment to validate your worth and the honor and integrity of your service. I've worked with white men who have done things that were completely crazy. I'm talking about renting cars, blowing it up and then pushing it off a cliff and then they come back to the ship and everybody laugh about it. But I drive my car without a license because I'm in the process of getting my permit to take a sailor to the hospital for an operation and I'm getting ready to face the captain. Now, mind you, these two white men just burned a vehicle, a rental vehicle, and pushed it off a cliff in Hawaii. And it's funny. But me, I'm wrong. (laughs) You know, the differential treatment that you get as a person of color, as an immigrant, as a woman, has always been prevalent and it always will be because it is a system of racism and patriarchy that runs that machine that we all are the nuts and bolts in. So I want them to see that I made it. I served honorably and I don't take it back. I come from a long line of service members on both sides of my family. Every generation has said, had someone serving in the military. So it's, it's possible that you can still serve your country and still be proud of who you are. You know, to me, I think one of the most important things to remember is that representation matters. It's enormously important. I was, 
in 2008, uh, I had been in the army for about a year, uh, and I had voted for the first time in the fir- my first presidential election as well. Uh, and you know, this guy got President Obama got elected, um, and to me, it, it was a mind blowing ex- moment in history because suddenly this guy who had a weird name like mine was the president of the United States, and it made me feel like not only could I, but my kids could do anything they, they, they dreamt of. Uh, something that before his election would not have, you know, would not have thought possible, you know, um, definitely not some, anything that my parents would have thought would be possible. And so that's why I feel like it's a really important for us to, even though these experiences are painful uh, to, to, to dredge up again, but to talk about them and, and name the enemy here because uh, there are soldiers just like me, the 18, 19 years old right now, uh, who are having to face similar things, unfortunately. And hopefully us speaking out here and using my voice will give them the opportunity to use theirs and allow them to see that while these things are happening to them, it feels like there's nothing you can do about it, but it's not right. And, and it does, you don't have to suffer through it uh, alone. Uh, and that's just like Tasha said, that's what we're here for is to show them that there is a community of veterans who have served. Uh, and there is going to be a long line of us uh, who will hopefully be looking out for each other in this way. As I'm sure you guys know, uh, nearly 20 percent of the people who have so far been charged with rioting at the Capitol, a part of that insurrection, were either active members of the military or veterans. When you heard about that what went through your minds were you surprised no uh, when i was in fort Meade, there was a group of men some soldiers that i worked with there who they proudly had their confederate flags for me someone coming from the state of texas when i see that that immediately reads racism because i've had crosses burned in my yard by people wearing the same flag you know and this is 1996 97 this was in 1945 62 So when I see that, that's blatantly displaying to me who you are and what you stand for. And I know they say, oh, that's Southern pride. But see, my people were oppressed under that flag. That flag was used to discriminate against my family when the Ku Klux Klan marched down the street and my mother had to hide because they didn't know what was going to happen to them. When they're listening to them ride their trucks up and down the road at night, telling them inwards, get in the house, that flag is flying in the back. So when I see that, I know who you are. I recognize that. And the FBI has been warning the United States government for many years, dating back all the way to 2006, that ghost skins or people that are infiltrating law enforcement and the armed forces who are white supremacists have been prevalent, not just from 2006, but dating all the way back to the initial start of this country, to the start of law enforcement, The slave patrols gave birth to law enforcement in this country. So I wasn't surprised to see it. I've been doing research on this. I'm a journalist myself. I write on racism for the Campanile out of Mills College in Oakland, California. I knew about it, and I was waiting to see when they were going to actually report it. Naveed, what was your reaction? Yeah, so hearing about this is hearing about the fact that, that so many military veterans were involved in, in the insurrection uh, was definitely scary uh, because these folks do have training uh, and experience that makes them more dangerous than the average Joe on the street. Um, 
However, I do want to temper this just by saying that 20% of those charged is only 27 veterans so far. Uh, I'm sure there were more, you know, there, they were definitely part of it. Uh, and there are definitely veteran or military adjacent groups like the Oath Keepers and others who uh, planned and plotted and, and were part of this insurrection. Um, however, most military veterans that I know uh, and I have experience with are more faithful to the Constitution than to any one party or uh person. They are more principled. They are more civically engaged. Um, and so I, I want to be cautious of creating this fear around veterans being extremists. It's just not the case. Uh, that being said, it is scary. And I definitely saw signs of this when I was in the military as well, that there are folks who want to specifically use their training uh, and they feel like the you know the America needs a paramilitary force uh, or, you know, to push these conservative values that they hold. Um, and that is dangerous. And I think that's something that, that so far our law enforcement agencies have not taken seriously. Uh, and that is the most dangerous part. You know, after, again, after 9-11, uh, I think it was the NYPD who did surveillance on uh, mosques in five states around New York, you know, not even in New York City, but in New Jersey and Connecticut and elsewhere. Um, and they found nothing, but they did that because they were afraid of Muslim extremism. And in that same vein, um, they should be more afraid of these homegrown uh, extremists who are more focused on, you know, violence as a means to an end. Uh, because to them, they see this as, and because the law enforcement is not focused on them, they see it as a uh, easy way, an easy path for them that they can get away with this stuff uh, because they are righteous in their beliefs. Uh, and that's the scariest part uh, is folks who feel like they can get away with it because they're above the law. Uh, and so of the 100, and so I think the real problem here is that only 100 something folks have been charged so far in relation to the uh, insurrection. I think back in June uh, of 2020, during the Black Lives Matter protests after um, you know, when that was going on, I think DC had arrested more than 300 people in that month, uh, just for those Black Lives Matter protests. And more than half of them, I believe, um, were just for, uh, curfew violations. So, and now, now the FBI and the justice department is saying that we're not sure if we're going to be able to charge everybody with trespassing in the Capitol. Why not? They were trespassing in the Capitol, weren't they? charge them. Everybody, whether they had a criminal record or not, knew they were in the wrong. You can't just wander into a place and walk out scot-free. Next time, they might not, you know, they might walk in and decide they don't want to leave so peacefully. So we need to uphold our norms, uphold our rule of law, and ensure that everybody, veterans or civilians or whoever, knows that this that's what this country is based on. Uh, and as far as veterans go specifically, the military needs to do a, do a much better job of tamping down on that. Again, when I went in, I had to go through a security clearance process because my job required it. I had to be interviewed by an agent uh, who sat down with me and asked me if I had any ties to any foreign nationals. I said, well, other than my entire family, no, not at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I had to go through that process and explain everything and make sure, and they made sure that I was not going to be a threat. Uh, and they need to do the same thing to folks now who are in the military, especially folks who are going to be dealing with sensitive 
data, but also folks who are going to be learning, anybody really who's going to be learning how to hold a weapon uh, and use it and know, and, you know, squad infantry tactics. Those folks were around the Capitol and you can see them in some of the videos. And it might look simple uh, that they were just, you know, walking through the crowd, but if they had gotten a hold of the vice president or the uh, speaker of the house, that would have been a true insurrection because who knows what could have happened there. Uh, and so the military, the you know DOD and the Department of Veterans Affairs, whoever else needs to get involved in tamping down on this kind of extremism in the ranks needs to do it sooner rather than later. Did you guys see the sentiment? Lots of people when it was happening or days after were saying, you know, this is the type of stuff that happens across the world and in third world countries and places where we are sent to protect democracy. This is not America. This should not be happening here. What did you make of that sentiment? Well, for me, it was hogwash because that is America. When you, when you talk about the lynchings of people of color, when you talk about the voter suppression and how they stood at the voting polls to make sure people couldn't vote, when you talk about them going into churches and burning down churches and again, lynching people, the picnics, the history of it, that is America. That has always been America. That's the foundation of who we are. I think the shock for many of them was the idea of hearing the word terrorist being mentioned in the picture of a white man flash and not somebody that looks like Naveed or looks like me. So now you're being put in the same category as the people that you call them over there. So I laughed at it because I'm like, what do you think they did when they came in and they stole land from the Native Americans? They didn't walk up to them and be like, well, can we have this? They took it through terrorist actions. When they enslaved people in this country, they enslaved them through terrorism. And I, I will say this, that people who believe in white supremacy and racism wrote the book on terrorism. You've always been the terrorist. You have used the military in many cases to terrorize other countries. It's just that now you are being associate with what you associate with being a person of color. Yeah, and, and I totally agree with what, what Tasha said too, that this situation really, I think, brought to the forefront of the American psyche that this is not something that just only happens elsewhere uh, all over the world. This can happen right here at home. Uh, and that these folks, when they're doing this and they they were you know conducting the insurrection, they were seeking out, uh, marching through the halls saying, hang Mike Pence. Uh, they, were, they were acting not unlike you know these folks that they don't want to be associated with in other third world countries. But the fact of the matter is that in those third world countries that, you, that they, they're thinking of, a lot of times those people are as well informed on their issues as we are here. And they were under the influence of disinformation here. Uh, and this kind of disinformation campaigns become so dangerous because of exactly what happened, where people took this, this uh narrative and ran with it in the completely the wrong direction. Where do we go from here? You are both working towards progressive veteran issues. There's a new administration. What do you hope this the country sees from this moment and this last month where, you know, all of these issues have been have come to the forefront and are in your face with this violent insurrection? Where do we go from here? So 
I think where we go from here is hopefully people realize that not only are people upset with the way the country is run or, or and by who is running the country, um, but that civic engagement at all levels of government is the solution to this, right? It's not marching in the Capitol. At that point, it's too late, uh, right? So you, you have already let your government fail at all other mechanisms and you feel like that's your only outlet. That means something went drastically wrong. And that's why I feel like these progressive issues that we're all fighting for should be everybody's issues, right? When you're when you're talking about abortion, the solution to less abortions is not to ban abortions, it's to make it so that women feel like they can bring a child into this world and be able to care for the for the child and be able to educate the child and be able to edu- to clothe the child uh, and not have to worry about losing their entire livelihood over it, right? So so when we're fighting for progressive issues, we're we're really hoping that people see that we're fighting for them, whether they're fighting against us or not. Uh, people have a tendency to vote against their interests, and we're hoping to show them that that uh, you know a, a tax cut for the one percent uh, for you know the Trump tax cut uh, did not help them at all. And we're hoping that they'll under- see and understand that when we have folks in Congress who are fighting for people to get a uh, small stipend to help them get through this pandemic, that's not you know uh, taking someone else's money and, and giving it to you. That's our government providing for its citizens, right? We as a society have progressed in many ways to reach the point where we are not a third world country. We can see that there are people in this country who are suffering and that we have the means and the resources to provide for them. And hopefully people will be able to see that we can do this, you know, and still be able to have a functioning democracy in a country where people have the opportunity to excel, uh, and but also not have the opportunity to fall into, uh, you know, abject poverty. And that's what's really, at this point, the only thing separating us from um, some of these third world countries that people look down upon. Tasha, where do you think we go from here? I think for me, one of the things that Black Lives Matter was protesting was defunding the police. And when we talk about defunding, we're not talking about taking away all funds to where they cannot be an active policing force in the United States of America. But think about who was at the Capitol. Many of them were law enforcement. These are people who are ex-military, who are now cops that have access to military-grade weapons that are storming the Capitol. So when we talk about defunding the police, we have to talk about dealing with the racism that is rooted in law enforcement that now has access to military-grade weapons. That should they decide they want to cause not just an insurrection, but another war on our streets, American streets, they can, because they've been granted that access. So this entire situation put the issue of the 1033 program out there in front. Not only that, it put the issue of white supremacy in the ranks of law enforcement, in the ranks of the military out in front. And most importantly, it's it's making America actually sit down and think about its racist roots. And I don't want to seem like I'm just trying to badger that that message, but I need that message to sink in for a second, because for the longest, we have denied it. We just watched a man die with a knee on his neck for eight minutes straight. And then to watch these people believe that they can go into the Capitol and storm it and not face any consequences. And they look just like the police officer that put his knee on that man's neck. It shows you where we as a country have not dealt with the racist roots that gave birth to who we are. 
So hopefully in going forth from here, there's no longer gaslighting when people of color talk about racism. There's no longer deflection from the message that we're showing that, look, we're not saying shoot them like you shoot black people when they protest. We're just saying don't shoot us like you don't shoot them when you open up barricades and let them march in and march out like nothing happened. Because you look at them and you see yourself as a law enforcement officer and have sympathy for them, but then you hate me because you don't understand why I'm marching. Give me a break. So now hopefully this is putting all that on the forefront to where we can have honest conversations about what's really going on in this country and the systemic oppression of people of color. Absolutely. Naveed, you were nodding your head a lot. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I do want to also mention too, um, so, the, you know, we started out talking about extremism in the ranks, and this is something, again, that has been overlooked so much uh, in the military because the military focuses on things that really don't make sense to people outside the military, that they're worried about your uniform, they're worried about, you know, walking on the grass, right? They're wor worried about things that make, yeah, that really make us laugh when you think about it. But, you know, the fact is that these extremist groups do start out in, the, in their infancy, at least in the military. And people take that, they take the, the, the things they learn, they take the rhetoric of that, the people around them, like the people that were around me who were calling me names and felt like they were insulated enough that they could get away with that. And they take that out. And that's where you get veterans who feel like they can go attack the capital of the United States while Congress is in session and try to kidnap the Speaker of the House and the, first, and the uh, uh, Vice President. So those are the issues that really need to be addressed. And like Tasha said, also, we're not that far removed. Uh, people think, and they'll say that, oh, slavery ended 150 years ago. Yeah, but the Civil Rights Act was passed only 55 years ago, right? The vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, uh, had to be bused to a separate school, right, because uh, of her race. It, it, this didn't end with slavery, and it didn't end with the Civil Rights Act, and it didn't end uh, with the 1994 crime bill, and it didn't end with Trayvon or Tamir, right? These are the things that are happening daily, right? And so when I, my son, who's 12, is walking to the bus stop uh, every day, I'm thinking about those things now, right? So these are not, this is not America's past that we're reckoning with. This is America's past, present, and potentially our future, unless we do something about it. Um, and that's where I'm at with it. Just today, uh, or recently for when this podcast airs, uh, the Biden administration repealed the transgender military ban. What did you guys think of that? This is a plus. It's a bonus because I have so many friends that I serve with who classify themselves as trans, who live life as trans individuals. And I think that our LGBTQ plus same gender loving, non-gender conforming brothers and sisters should be able to serve honorably regardless of their orientation, regardless of how they identify themselves or how they live their lives because that's their personal business. But if you're still an honorable person that respects this country and upholds the constitution, none of that should even matter. The only thing that matters is how you conduct yourself and how you respect your fellow American. I think the numbers vary depending on which study you read, but I believe it's somewhere between 30 to 60 percent of Americans aren't even eligible to serve in the military. Out of the ones who are eligible to serve in the military, only a very small fraction, a handful 
actually volunteer to serve the military. And out of those who volunteer, still only even a smaller fraction of those make it through training to actually wear the uniform and become a soldier, sailor, airman, or marine. And so for somebody to go through all of that and get there, and then for the military to say, you're not eligible to serve because of your gender identity, that's just wrong, right? These are people who are courageous and brave and uh, strong. I, I might have just said three things all mean the same thing, but they volunteered for this when nobody else would. So we should be thankful that there are people who are still willing to do that, despite everything that the LGBTQ community has to go through in this country still. So I think it's fantastic that the Biden administration has repealed the trans ban that Trump instilled. However, there's still work to be done on that front as well. There needs to be comprehensive reform on those issues uh, because we can't just say you're welcome to serve and then then not be prepared to serve the community. Uh, And that's not only for the DOD while they're in the service, but also for the Department of Veterans Affairs when they get out to be able to be prepared to provide them with the health care and services that they earn when they're in service. So exciting, very happy that this has happened today. Uh, hoping to see more from the Biden administration while they have the chance to make it right. Each of you retired from the military. You started working on progressive issues and reform, and you seem to be working tirelessly uh, towards making things better, both for veterans, but and society. You went from serving your country in one way, in a more literal sense, uh, with both the military and with the Marines, now to serving your country in uh, a more activist, political way. That's a lot of serving. (laughs) Uh, I mean, just tell me, why is it so important to you? And tell me about what you're working on. As you both know, we are, we're working with Common Defense currently. Um, I would like to bring forth a media platform that serves to give information that combats the disinformation that is out there in regards to politics, policies, uh, certain politicians, and political news. Because I'm, I'm a journalist, as I told you, I'm the, the chief news editor for the Campanile out of Mills College. And I've always been attracted to radio, TV, print, photojournalism, because that's something that I grew up with. In my house, we watched the news. We were always informed. And I noticed the biggest thing we have in this country when it, in regards to ignorance and racism is misinformation. So as long as the truth is always prevalent and available to those who can access it, you can start combating some of the misbeliefs that people have about our immigrant brothers and sisters. For example, in, in the Black community, They don't think that the issues of immigration affect Black people. And I have to constantly remind them, some of those brothers and sisters in the cages at the borders, they're Afro-Latino. Some of them come from the continent of Africa and lived in Central and South America and now trying to get to the United States seeking asylum. So you got brothers from the continent that are coming here and being stuck in cages like animals. Same thing throughout the Afro-Caribbean countries. So to educate not just the world, but mostly my people so that they're more informed and can make more informed decisions on who to vote for, how to vote, what issues are most important to us and affect everybody's communities as a collective in the United States is something that I'm working on. And I also do a lot of documentary work as well. I'm working on a documentary called Sex and a Single Black Woman. 
and it focuses on the the disenfranchisement and how it's affected black love and relationships. So my biggest thing is communication, bringing forth that information for people to not only come together as one, but heal from the, the generational epigenetic curses of enslavement, of oppression and apartheid. You know, I started out uh, working in, on veterans issues uh, in a nonpartisan way. Uh, and I did that for a number of years, uh, I realized that there was many, many times where I would be across the table from a congressman uh, who would inevitably say something along the lines of, well, I'll support this legislation if you'll support me for reelection. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, this is not a partisan issue. I, we don't want to get involved in your election. Veterans issues should not be a partisan issue. And I found more often than not, it was one side of the of the aisle that was uh, you know, making politics out of things than the other. Uh, and so that's when I made the jump to, to uh, you know, progressive politics instead and came to common defense. Because for me, we want, I want to affect change uh, for all the same, many of the same reasons that Tasha said. Um, you know, I feel like many of the issues that Americans face um, can be kind of turned on their head when the veteran narrative is brought into it or the military narrative is brought into it because we have such a reverence and rightfully so for, for our, our military here in America. Um, but when, you know, folks on the cons conservative side of the aisle talk about things like food stamps, for example, they say that people who are on food stamps are lazy and they don't want to work and, and they don't deserve our help. Uh, well, the fact of the matter is 25% of military families are on food stamps. So are we saying that they're, they're lazy, they don't want to work? Or are we, should we really, really be looking at the fact that wages have been stagnant for the past 30 years and that people are working harder than they ever have before, but they're still not able to feed their families, right? And so when you bring that narrative into it, suddenly everything changes for people. Like hopefully they realize that things are very different than the narrative that they've been fed. And they just need hope. They just need us, uh, folks that, like us, a common defense to tell them the story that that has been right in front of their face, but they just haven't seen it yet. For each of you, what is it that's most important for you to convey? Maybe it's correcting something that you feel is often spoken about in the media about your experience, about what it might be like to be a person of color in the military or in the Marines. What do you want people to know? That is a uh, loaded question because <laughs> it's quite a bit. Uh, for me, as an advocate for Black people throughout the African diaspora, my focus is Black Lives Matter. And when I say Black Lives Matter, I mean all Black lives. Because now we're at the point where we got to throw it out there. Not just heterosexual Black males, Black women, trans, LGBTQ+, disabled, mentally challenged, poor, you name it, veteran, you name it. So that's that's what I want to progress forward. Yeah, and in that same vein, I think my biggest thing that I, I want to see change is I want people who are from all walks of life, whether they are you know, born here or whether they're immigrants, whether you know their parents came here, uh, whatever, that we are all part of the fabric that makes up America. And we cannot keep othering people. We cannot keep saying that this person is not good enough or this person is not, good, is not welcome here or we need to build up a border wall to keep these people out. 
you know, there are thousands of deported veterans whose stories might never get told unless we are able to find them and, and, and tell their stories. And so for a country that holds these ideals up on a pedestal, we are failing to live, live up to them. Uh, and so that's what needs to change for me is that um, we need to recognize that what was written 200 something years ago, that all men are created equal is a dream that we're still fighting for to this day. Naveed, Tasha, thank you so much. Thank you for opening up to me, sharing your stories. Thank you for your service, the service that you served abroad and at home and that you continue to do in your everyday life through both of your careers and your missions. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. This is wonderful. Yeah. Of course. I mean, it's just, I think it's just so important to be talking about this. And I mean, I, I originally saw a tweet from Alex McCoy uh, at Common Defense, and he literally just called out the media and said, you know, look, we're getting a lot of requests for being connected to right-wing extremist veterans, and nobody's asking for the perspectives of people of color in the military who maybe served with these people. Yeah. Come on, guys. And I saw that tweet, and like, it's just, it's true. Yeah. Why are we focusing on that negative when there are people like you guys doing this incredible work to make change and using your own experiences? It's courageous and incredible. And I just, I really, really appreciate it. Well, when they see veteran, they don't right. think us. They don't see Naveen. They don't see me. They see the World War right. II veteran or the white guy with the yeah. service dog, <laughs> you yeah. know, so... This is our opportunity to pretty much yeah. shine. And women and minorities are the fastest growing segment of the veteran population right now. Uh, largely for the many of the reasons that we talked about, you know, it gives you the, the military service gives you an opportunity to change your life for the better. Uh, and so we're hoping that people still are able to see that, that you can make your life better by joining the military. And it's not just full of extremists uh, and white supremacists. There are many, many more good people who are willing to fight for you. Thanks for listening.